Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today, we're speaking with Anastasia Kuskova. Yeah. Uh, this is Rocket. I am Gary. Great talking to you. Anastasia is a supply chain sustainability junkie and a passionate woman and diversity advocate on a mission to empower every business to drive impact. Love it. Currently, she's the co-founder and CEO of Cirrus. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. <laughs> a sustainability company that provides analytics built-in templates, real-time recommendations to help both corporates and suppliers to meet ESG requirements, supporting them on their journey to reaching their sustainability goals. And that may be evolving. She's also the co-founder and governance board member at Resource, an advanced technology platform developed by the consortium of companies to underpin trust in metals provence. She's also an angel investor at Lendors. Yes, that's uh, a big clue. <laughs> yeah. You were the head of sustainability and transformation at Eurasian Resource Group, ERG, and leading a diversified natural resource group with integrated mining, processing, energy, logistics, and marketing operations. And you were there from 2014 to 2022. You're also a strategic advisor at Research Institute, advising on blockchain technology applications to industrial problems on possible use cases. Uh, you have a master's in of arts in banking and finance from the University of Galen. St. Galen, yeah, Heisge. Yeah, yeah. It's a Swiss one. <laughs> yeah, and, and you have a bachelor's degree in economics from, I can't pronounce this one, uh, Anastasia. From Moscow yeah, it's, State. Uh, it's Moscow State. Yeah, Moscow okay, State. Okay, let's call it Moscow State. I can say that. <laughs> Welcome to Sustainable Minds. It's yeah, great thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be yeah. here. So I have a start, and I'm not sure I shared this with you, but when you were young, very, very young, a young girl, and what did you dream of? What inspired you as a young kid? And this question kind of leads to how did you arrive here and what you're doing today? Yeah, well, I never actually dreamed about working in sustainability. I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> I always wanted to work in finance and in banking. And I think my whole education built up to me getting to Switzerland and to getting a master's degree there. And then while doing that, I realized that the last thing I want to do, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> so, and uh, yeah, I started with consulting and in strategy consulting, and then from strategy, slowly built towards sustainability, one project at a time. Was more of a natural transition to sustainability, but never expected. So, <laughs> yeah, and it took me some time to explain to my parents what I do. Now they understand, but... <laughs> Then it was like sustainability, what? And there is no, like, I'm originally from Russia and there is no specific word on that in Russian. So it's, it's really easy yeah. translatable. 
So I don't really pass a grandma test. <laughs> I love that. So I read you're on a mission to make sustainability accessible to any business. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we're in that boat as well. But break that down for us. What does that mean from your point of view? Well, I think I better explain it in the story how we came to that. Okay. While being Chief Sustainability Officer in ERG, I also co-founded a corporate startup, Resource, which is focused on delivering traceability of critical metals from mine to electric car. This resource is used right now by Tesla to trace their metals of or cobalt to the battery, make sure that it's mined sustainably, capture sustainability indicators, etc. So we worked with the entire supply chain and we had a lot of partners along the supply chain and have been in this for plus four years, four plus. And while working on it, I realized with, with my team how little is done for smaller players in the supply chain. Now, everyone in big companies, you have a big sustainability department, or even if not big, still several people with specific education, access to resources, they have budget, everything. They know what to do. For smaller businesses, they have to keep up and they have to learn on the go. And usually they don't even have a dedicated person for that. And sustainability is getting more and more like complex in the sense that you need to know what scope one, scope two, scope three is. You need to learn what are the requirements and regulations, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very demanding. And if you can't meet those requirements, you kind of kicked out of the market. And what we want to do with Sirius is enable companies, regardless of their size and budget, to become sustainable because it shouldn't be restrictive. It should be like a go-to. So that's what we're trying to do with Sirius. It's so important because so many of these large companies are developing policies where they can't work with people who aren't providing that sustainability, traceability all the way through. And it will really end up becoming discrimination where there's just these small companies will never be able to really grow and play with certain players if something like what you're talking about doesn't help them. They need Yeah, help. absolutely. Absolutely. And the upcoming regulations in Europe, they actually require you to push your suppliers to give you full information. If they don't have it, then yeah, you either have to help them. And that's also very restrictive because you need to work with somebody not in your company. It's, yeah, there are a lot of complexities involved in that. But also a situation that I had, I personally had, we started to require our suppliers to provide their emissions to us. And there was some issue on communicating that requirement. So it got as in... <laughs> And nice to have, it turned to must have. And I actually, I literally had person from like a small company producer, small metal parts producer calling me and almost crying and asking me, I don't know what scope one is. I don't know what you're asking me. They're not going to pay me if I don't do that. So it's a pain for smaller companies. They need to learn a lot and they don't have financing to decarbonize or do something about their emissions or even to calculate them. So yeah, that's exactly where so, we focus. So you provide a platform for them, correct? Yes. Yes. So what we do is we provide them with projects, prepackaged projects to reduce their emissions. And in this package, we have 
all set up, the technology itself, and also financing. So green financing from the banks that we partner with. Mm -hmm. It underlines how important collaboration is in reaching this sustainability, a sustainable world. And that's something that, that always strikes me and is interesting because business has always been sort of our competitive advantage that we aren't going to talk about or share with anyone anything. <laughs> so it really, that collaboration is so necessary, even between competitors often, that it's what a great, it was really a gap that you guys saw that is fantastic for smaller companies, for sure. Yeah. And when we were talking about this podcast and preparing for it, you asked me one thing that I would change. And the idea that immediately came to my mind was the mindset, the mindset of collaboration. And everybody's talking about collaboration and sustainability, but it's actually because we've tried it and we've worked on that. Until I started the startup, I was deputy governor at the World Economic Forum on the metals and mining platform and participated in quite a few initiatives like green steel, green aluminum under the general mission possible platform, which is focused on, yeah, on getting to net zero. And there are a lot of companies working together, collaborating. And it's very hard to get something tangible out of this unless you really have a lot of skin in the game. If you really want to share, if you really want to not to use it as a competitive advantage or try to find ways to still collaborate, but still get to your competitive advantage. And yes. the project, the startup that we developed, it's essentially a collaboration between three very large miners. And then we were joined by midstream and downstream mm -hmm. players. And it was very hard in the beginning to align those interests and to get into this common and shared understanding that we are in it together. And if we don't change the industry, we're probably all going to lose. So we need to change the industry and make it more sustainable and do not compete in this area, in this specific area, and compete on some other aspects. So you were recently recognized by the Natural Resources Forum, ESG champions, 25 individuals <laughs> and organizations driving forward innovation, education, and real change. And I like the real change because so many times change is hard to happen, right? Change is really hard. And for you to be involved with all these organizations and driving the change and the evolution is very powerful. It, very powerful. I'm, I know for me, it became extremely real when first I read Cradle to Cradle, which talked about just the reuse and it's still, instead of cradle to grave, which was innovation to be obsolete and throw out and in landfills. And then the same authors wrote a book called Upcycle. And Upcycle was a whole different, I mean, the light bulbs went off where you think about a design problem where you have to start in the beginning redesigning, fundamentally redesigning what we do <laughs> and how we develop our products and services so that you do have that. So they become that circular economy where they become the nutrients for a new product or service. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
half of the sustainability people are still back in cradle to cradle where it's more about, well, melting all the plastic down and reusing it to make another project rather than it being designed from the beginning, multiple product uses and coming back around to actually be a nutrient to the environment and to the planet. So I don't know, it seems like you're, what you're talking about is a lot so important that people really realize that we have to redesign business. We have to redesign how we do things. Yeah, absolutely. And also in some industries, I would say we even need to redesign the industry. So if we talk about fashion industry, for example, I'm of course not an expert in fashion industry, but still uh, the premise of fast fashion and sustainability, they just don't go together. The entire business model of fast fashion giants has to be redesigned completely because otherwise it's just fancy greenwashing, then I don't know, every day, let's not name names, but <laughs> every day the companies wear a shirt, t-shirt costs, I don't know, five bikes. It cannot be produced sustainably. And then and you wear it once or twice and then you throw it away and then it's done. So for me, actually, it was a big mental change to stop buying in those shops, I don't know, like mm-hmm. three or four years ago. Then I was a student, I couldn't afford anything else. <laughs> but yeah, I remember actually my H&M shirt that I, I purchased, like the one for my consultancy interview mm-hmm. where I worked uh, after university, cost 15 bucks. But I wore it, uh, it was proper, not fast fashion because I, I wore it, I think, for like two and a half years. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was very, very loved. Right. Yeah. And my daughters, I have two daughters and they actually at this point take pride in shopping at thrift stores and Goodwill and, you know, Absolutely. because That's been they, their values growing up are, are different where they get yeah. it and they see that at least I can do that. Yeah. And the industry, like fashion industry, for sure, it has to be it will be redesigned and changed. And it's changing already. There are so many new startups working on different models on sharing across the value chain because the problem there is with intrinsic imbalance in the power of the brand and power of the factories. And yeah, and essentially it's a big separate question, but yeah, there are so many companies that actually solving that problem or trying to solve and working towards Mm -hmm. that. So I think it will be redesigned. And it's very, in general, I think the climate tech and sustainability tech will be front and center in the next, in the upcoming years. And 2022 was the biggest year for the climate tech. I think it almost doubled. It was 70 billion was invested in climate tech only. And it's 89% up from 2021. I think it will continue to grow. And that's essentially the key for the change. And if before climate tech was perceived like climate tech 1.0, as they call it, was perceived more like investment in heavy tech, difficult hardware things. Right now, it's also about connectivity, about transforming the balance of the industry, creating the ecosystem on green financing marketplace. So something similar to what we do as well, giving access to sustainable solution, making sustainable solutions cheaper and better because money talks either way, even if it's sustainable, still money talks. And 
Yeah. So I'm very optimistic about that, even though I think we're going to miss some of the <laughs> important targets. I'm very mm -hmm. optimistic about the talent that's coming into the climate tech, about Gen Z and all of the other Yeah, let me ask you about that, because you seem to have a passion for startups. And you recently spoke at the Impact Startup Showcase. Not recently, a few months ago, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, what was your theme there? What was your message? startups? Oh, well, my message was about small, medium-sized companies. It was more about explaining why you should get investments in your startup, why you are investment-worthy company, and what's the impact behind your idea, and what's the impact DNA in yeah. the, do you have it, and is it like greenwashing or just real impact? And yeah, I just spoke about the need that we saw for change in small and medium-sized companies and that we actually motivate real change. We don't just assess and demonstrate the problem. We actually give instruments on and money yes. on yeah, yeah, like all of the tools that small companies need to actually do that. So they're just a few clicks away from the yeah, organization. I think that you bring awareness to some that there's this whole other avenue of financing that perhaps in the beginning and what they thought their business model could be, that this other avenue could bring is a whole new place that if they rethink how they are starting up, that they can access. That can change a lot for people and be good in the long run that they'll, all, they'll be a green business from the start. Yeah. Rather yeah. than trying to re-engineer things. Exactly. So what I like about the startups is they can be a green business from the start, but they can also have the right mindset, something that you just, they can really have the right mindset and develop a internal culture, company culture. Attract the right people. That supports that. They have the right belief systems in place that they're different. and. They're, they care for many stakeholders if they get financing, just not from shareholders, but they're really out for many stakeholders. So startups is really interesting and a great opportunity to bring real change yeah. at a grassroots level. I see many companies where it's sort of like it, it's reflecting the way that ESG, it used to be sort of the siloed thing over here. And now it's a seat at the CEO C-suite table. I see the same sort of parallel with some of the larger companies in trying to develop sustainable things, especially the large companies, because they have the resources and the talent. They can go out and get chemists. They can go out and fund people who aren't necessarily what small businesses start with. They usually source things to make something new. And they are over here doing this. But then once they come up with things, it's almost like I've started to see in the fashion business where they develop materials that then can be a profit center in itself to competitors because they're developing these, you know, it's not just their own products, but they're developing things that can actually 
generate in revenue for the company. And as they do that, it becomes more central. It starts moving in from the silo department to being considered and getting more resources and more budgets to support it. True, true. It's it's a real success sustainability case if that Mm. happens. And I think in the corporate setting, it's critical to innovate in different ways. And first in making things. And we even had back to my role, my corporate role, we had three types of innovation. And one is to make things that you do now just in more sustainable and environmentally friendly way. So like with limited effect and more positive effect on the environment. And the second one was about actually innovating and creating products that would be intrinsically sustainable. And the third, I don't remember. But <laughs> And uh, it was, I guess, something in between. But in general, R&D and the heavy R&D is a prerogative of large companies. And solutions for green steel, for example, right now are developed by the biggest steel producers. Solutions for green demand, well, with there are quite a few startups as well, but uh, still also heavy skewed towards large corporates who invest in the future of their companies and who see that emissions from cement production will be limiting their profits in the upcoming years. So they better invest now. And it's very important sustainability case. And I think for every sustainability leader in a corporate company, they have to learn to create a business case for shareholders to invest because you not always have shareholders who have, I don't know, who are driven by impact. Of course, there's more change, but still, the, you optimize towards one dimension usually, and now others are secondary, and this one dimension is profit. So you have to create this business case. Yeah. And, and there are many. Beyond, there are so many. Beyond the financial case, we do feel there is also a talent base in the sense that they won't be able to attract these younger generations that want to be a part of doing good for the planet. I don't know. You know, my favorite question that I talk to younger generations, that my favorite question is like, how do you wake up working in a mining company? (laughs) And then I try to explain that it's critical to actually have climate warriors in mining and metal companies and cement companies, because then you have the power to change and you need to be in the areas where the change is needed the most. But it's, again, you have to have the leadership that supports that. Because if you are, you know, analyst or it's some not very high level climate warrior, it's not always easy. You need to have a stage. You need to have a platform. You need to have support from the leadership. And it's a very, you need to have an understanding at the leadership level. And that's very important. But yeah, like in the Netherlands, Here, I think working in Shell, regardless of new changed Shell agenda, working at Shell is a big (laughs) big move at all. (laughs) So everyone is like, well, uh, (laughs) really? (laughs) But I guess it's changing because guys are changing. Hopefully they really believe in their new strategy. So let's see. But I can understand it. And it was hard attracting talent 
back at my corporate role, it's much easier in the climate tech startup, much easier. (laughs) Just drop a message and then everyone wants because, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I read recently that climate and anxiety is one of the, of the biggest anxieties and stress factors that younger generations have. And that's also a way of working. Like it's something that your doctor recommends you to do because yeah, you can control, you do something in your zone of control. So you go and you work for a climate startup and you every day work towards a better future, a future that you want to see. So yeah, it helps with an anxiety, I guess, as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Outside of the metals and mining industry, if you had a magic wand in this world of sustainability, what is the next sort of most important thing to you or from your point of view that you would change? Oh, so many. Well, first, I would for even more investment in climate startups. And also, as you mentioned, I'm diversity advocate, uh, more in female and general minority-led startups because we don't have enough. And they tend to come with a lot of innovative solutions and more likely to solve social problems based on research, not my word. So I would, yeah, more investments, of course, more stimulating, more. Also, I would think that more education, not only in universities, but also at schools on sustainability, because that's how you put the seeds of change in the minds and how you motivate people to create better solutions in the future. What else? That's an, interesting, <laughs> that's an interesting concept in itself because I have two daughters who one is in college, one just graduated from college. And I sort of, because I'm sort of a lifetime learner, I love to learn. <laughs> so sometimes I would ask them, like, share your syllabuses with me. And I love to read so I can read some of the books that they're reading so I can have better conversations. And I was shocked by how antiquated some of the curriculum was at these universities. Like the world has changed and they're still teaching courses that they developed. I mean, textbooks that were developed before any of this became mainstream. So I was always just shocked. And I mean, at well-respected universities. My, we've got one daughter at UC Davis, and I've got another one that graduated from Loyola Marymount, LMU. It just was incredible to me. And like, as you said, was sustainable. After I had read those two books, I was looking at some sustainable fashion information, This fad, the, exactly mm-hmm. what you said about the fast fashion. And I was amazed. I mean, there are some courses online, but in the design department at UC Davis, there's nothing. It's just, you know, that is a big problem. It's another good area for startup innovation, right? Yeah. So climate is sustainable education, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering... One of the things that we're about is corporations having purpose and mission and stating their values in a way that's 
ownable, not just words that are common words like integrity and teamwork. It's like, what does that mean in these walls? What, you know, we worked with Booz Allen and we redefined their values and courageous integrity. That's what they're really, you feel it when you talk to their employee base. And so it's interesting to me how you were just talking about the fact that that opportunity is there in the startup where it really does come from the leader. And as they grow and the big corporations where we've sort of had whenever we work with people who are sort of fighting upstream to get the C-suite to understand, it never follows through. But if there's, if it's coming from the top, it really can start to align and develop a real strong culture that means something and up being not only a differentiator, but again, success in the business. And so it's interesting for us. But what I admire is that you're really trying to provide tools, provide concrete things that will give so many more people an opportunity to be in the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's impossible without leadership desire. You don't necessarily need like a climate warrior as a CEO, but you still need support. So you definitely need a certain internal advocate and leader and could be at any level. And it should be supported from bottom up. So from all the lowest level of organization of hierarchy and organization okay. still has to be supported. But it has to go both ways. And if you don't have this forum at leadership level, if you don't have that platform, it's never going to work because all of your initiatives are going to be, they're all going to be dead in a few months or years once you are not there or once, I don't know, it's a bad year, it's downturn, COVID, whatever. First thing they're going to cut is sustainability because like, what's yeah. the business case, how it's going to work, etc. You need to have a certain, and it's also always sustainability, always long-term. That's always very hard to understand because most of the organizations, they're driven by, by their reports, by short-term results. They need to report to their shareholders. They need to blah, 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 blah. So it's very hard to create a proper story and narrative for sustainability, long-term things that are going to have effect in three, five, seven years. It's even longer maybe than the, the term of the CEO. So exactly. Well, that's there exactly, are a lot of, yeah, yeah, that's contradictions exactly right. there. Yeah, we have one client and Avery Dennison, they're a materials science client company. They make materials for packaging. They've been focused on sustainability for many, many years. And when the new CEO took over in 2017, he actually added sustainability to one of their values. We helped mm -hmm. them in a lot of areas. One of the things that we help them do is communicate their values and their ethics and their sustainability to 35,000 employees in 50 countries. So there's some big... It's not an easy task. Right? No, but it's really at their core. And, I know and he's I, made the commitment yeah, to and, make it 
from their core, which so, is their people. Yeah. So there are there's a lot of companies out there that there's too much greenwashing going on. They may oh, talk about their, they may talk about their good they're doing over in this corner over here. But when you lift the curtain on the other corner over here, you see stuff that's not really what you would want it to be. So transparency is important, but people that are really have the mindset, I think that's one of the themes of our talk today is having the right <laughs> mindset. And these companies that the big corporates that have the right mindset and they have evolved to this are going to be the winners at the end of the day. Well, and hopefully they can be the ones to have it trickle down. Hopefully. That's why I'm so interested in the startups and and them having Mm -hmm. having the right business model, but also the right mindset, diversity, inclusion, equity, a strong core belief system that's going to move them forward and doing the right business. So I think integrity is another big theme here. Yeah, Barry shared an article with me just yesterday where it was discussing, and I thought it was very interesting, was it was discussing the fact that when so many of the companies do their sustainability matrix, that if they're only reporting with SASB, which already is just about financial materiality, they aren't really exploring or have determined the outwards materiality for the planet, for people. It's really, I never really realized because you look at those charts and you think, oh, they've done their homework, you know, and their strategy is well-founded because they've talked to, but the issues that they if they're only using SASB as their framework, is already skewed. So how do you feel about the frameworks or in the reporting aspect, even though you are really trying to facilitate the reporting, the transparency, by giving people real platforms and tools? Yeah, well, I'm not a big fan of, well, it's going to sound wrong, but... I don't really believe that reporting on something actually means change. And I think Alison Taylor, she was in one of your earlier podcasts. Mm -hmm. She mentioned that transparency doesn't mean improvement. And transparency is important. It's critical. But also... Showing progress. Yeah, showing progress and actually demonstrating the the positive dynamic. And then there are also like... Honestly, I don't have an answer to that. There is double materiality that's being more popular right now in Europe with European regulation. We'll see how that works and what it brings. And in general, have this skepticism about reporting because you can play with it very well. But it still has to be done. So... I don't know. It has to start somewhere. I don't know what works. Yeah. It has to start somewhere. Um, Allison talked about too much box ticking. Check check ridiculous. And something that I see in within who you are and what you are doing in this article that Rocket is referencing, it's really talking about real change. And it's talking about real change. It's companies are going to have to transform the way they do business. And this is big. I mean, there's some really big topics that are going to make some people very uncomfortable 
with the change that's going to have to happen to meet these goals that we must meet. And it's just not a reporting issue or it's just not a greenwashing where you'd want to look good in what you're doing, but you may not be making really significant change or it may not be completely honest and transparent. Well, there's a lot of pressure to, for some industries and for some people, they want things to stay at status quo because they're benefiting from it. Yeah, disruption is always uncomfortable, right? Yeah, uncomfortable. And it's going to be uncomfortable, I guess, for all of us, because with you mentioned about looking at one side, you are nice from this side, and then you look on the back, and then there are very nasty things. And it's why right now it's very hard to have this integrity as a company. Because, yeah, you actually need to commit. You need to, if you have your commitment on net zero, you need to drop those private jet flights for your top management. And I've actually witnessed quite a few discussions on managers not really wanting to drop (laughs) their private jets, even sacrificing for first class, no way. So, and there are going to be uncomfortable changes, maybe more uncomfortable (laughs) than switching from private jet to first class, but still like not buying stuff that often, going to thrift shops, you know, a lot of on the personal level, but also on company level, a lot of uncomfortable changes, but it is what it is. It's what we have to do because, yeah, if we go into the rabbit hole of looking how climate looks right now and what's waiting us there, well, it doesn't look good. And yeah, so we have to, but hopefully good startups are going to make it less painful for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, yeah, also, I think that it's interesting how in the last, I'd say, two years, three years, with all of these disasters, natural disasters that we've had from hurricanes mm-hmm. to tornadoes to here in, in California right now with these river ass, what do you, what they call it, oh, in yeah. the clouds, it's yeah. called a river atmosphere atmosphere river yeah atmosphere that have brought these very strong storms that people regular they're starting to feel the pain from these things and the companies they're starting to realize that it's going to cost some money to not transform well that's when change will happen when they feel the pain when they feel the pain Mm -hmm. the pain they're going to change so i got a question here. It's kind of a wrap-up question. So much has transpired in the last five years in sustainability. So much has transpired in the last 10 years, right? But we have a ways to go. What do you see five years out, 10 years out, when you think about that? Interesting. Well, I think probably even shorter than five years, climate adaptation, something that we just mentioned, will be a key area also for growth and the necessity, essentially. So mitigating the risks. I also see sustainability becoming a part of strategic narrative in a much more intrinsic way than it is right now. So it's going to be licensed to operate in a sense and many, many more regulations coming. Again, probably not the most efficient instrument, but very still quite effective, expensive for the society, but still effective. A lot of regulations everywhere. 
And probably we're going to have in the top 10 biggest companies, we're going to have many more climate champions. So some of the current leaders replaced, I don't know, probably Meta, Google going to go down a little bit and other winners going to come. We'll see who that's going to be. Hopefully some good companies with great mission on climate or energy storage. We'll see. What else? Yeah, well, new champions, that's for sure. And probably we'll see, unfortunately, we'll see many more disasters and things that are going to motivate us to change. Unfortunately, but that's the fact of life. We're probably going to miss the 1.5 goal. Um, so it is what it is. But that's probably the motivation we need. Thank you. I like that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That's excellent. Anastasia, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Yes. Yeah. Have a good rest of the Friday. Yeah. <laughs> and, have a good weekend. Uh, yeah, thank have you. Have a good weekend. And Enjoy we'll the rain. Up. We'll follow Yes, up. there's more rain here. We need it. And hopefully it won't do too much damage. One day we'll figure out what to do with all the stuff. But uh, <laughs> until then, thank you so yeah, much. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.